welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today on the Afternoon Light podcast I am joined by Bob Bowker who is a former Australian diplomat and academic. Bob was Australia's ambassador to Jordan from 1989 to 92 and in Egypt from 2005 to 2008 and Bob has written extensively on Middle East issues and this includes the Suez crisis of 1950-57. He's the author of the monograph Australia, Menzies and Suez which discusses Australia's approach to the 1956 Suez crisis and that is the topic of our discussion today. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute, Bob. Thank you, Georgina. Nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast, Bob. And uh, we are coming up to the 29th of October 2021, which marks the 65th anniversary of the crisis, the Suez crisis, really escalating into a conflict with the Israeli invasion of Sinai. And uh, I'm really, really interested in picking apart your views and and understanding the Suez crisis more, not least because it is such an important period of Australian and and global history, particularly Middle East history, of course, but also because, as you say in your your book, it raises questions about the contemporary challenges facing Australian foreign policy when we're faced with a rebalancing of the global order, which is, of course, happening today. So, Bob, let's start with what was the Suez crisis for for those who aren't so familiar with it. Well, certainly it it was the dominant issue for Australia as far as the Middle East was concerned uh, in the 1950s. Uh, In fact, between July 56 and the beginning of 1957, there were seven cabinet submissions and more than 20 cabinet decisions, all derived from Suez. And it began essentially as a result of decisions made in Washington and London to cancel the possibility of assistance to Egypt to build a high dam at Aswan, which would provide an electricity and irrigation model which would empower the Egyptian economy under the new government led by Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, Nasser uh, reacted very badly, of course, uh, to news of this cancellation. And uh, his response was to nationalise the Suez Canal, which was owned by a a French-British consortium and had operated the canal under uh, arrangements that went back to 1888 uh, as an international uh, waterway. The response of NASA of nationalising the canal sent shockwaves uh, through Western capitals and the immediate response of the British under Prime Minister Anthony Eden was to obviously rally the the Western uh, powers together, the United States themselves, 
and a number of other canal users to try to come up with a means of uh, restoring international control over the canal. And Menzies got involved in that because he was in Washington at the time all of this happened and uh, went back to London, uh, joined in a conference of canal users, and eventually went to Cairo to try to present uh, proposals from that conference to NASA, seeking to persuade him to relinquish his control of the canal. Uh, The mission was a failure in many ways. Certainly NASA wasn't prepared to reverse his decision. And from that point on, things became even worse, uh, culminating in a British decision to join with Israel and France in a military action which was designed ultimately to impose such a humiliating military defeat on NASA that he would be overturned. It was a notion which uh, clearly was not going to succeed without American support and the Americans had long made it perfectly clear they would not tolerate the notion of a military action against Egypt or against NASA, no matter how many doubts they continue to hold about where Egypt was going under his under his control. So that, in a nutshell, is, is what happened. Uh, decisions which were not directly related to Suez uh, produced an outcome which ultimately uh, brought the US and, uh, and the British uh, into considerably difficult moment with each other, with Menzies effectively trying to represent the concerns of the British uh, to the Americans and ultimately failing to make any headway in that regard. We will be familiar with the Suez Canal, of course, from um, March this year when the very large tanker, the Ever Given, got got sort of jammed in the middle of it, didn't it? And uh, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a stark reminder of the importance of the Suez Canal for connecting the Red Sea and the Mediterranean and, of course, enables the free flow of, of shipping and, and global trade from, uh, from, from the Middle East and Africa through to, to Europe. So this crisis, you can understand why it exercised so many different global powers and global interests um, back in the 1950s? Certainly. The uh, uh, 60% of Australia's trade uh, went through the Suez Canal. Uh, And if the canal were to be closed for any reason, it added about seven days steaming time to our exports, uh, which were then in those days predominantly uh, directed towards Europe and so on. And there was also concern that an anti-Western regime in Egypt might have closed the, the canal to the, uh, the British or the French or others with uh, strategic interests in the Indian Ocean and, and in East Asia. And so there were these sort of anxieties which surrounded NASA's actions. But in many ways, that was not the, the heart of the issue. The real issue was what NASA's actions signalled about the decline of an empire to which Australians largely uh, wished uh, still to belong. I think the the British political figure, Rab Butler, summed it up very well uh, in his memoirs uh, when he said that Suez was was really about resentment at the loss of empire, 
the rise of coloured nationalism, as they called it, and uh, the transfer of world leadership to the United States. That's what really uh, galvanised Eden and, and the British response uh, uh, into what was ultimately, uh, in the absence of American backing, March of Folly. Indeed. And I mean, you, you paint a picture of the importance of Suez to Australia in that it was important for our for our exports to get through to, to Europe. And this was at a time uh, before the Britain had joined the European Economic Communities. So a large portion of our agricultural trade was with, with Britain and Europe. And, you know, we hadn't quite shifted our export focus to Asia as we did post the um, Britain's entry into the EEC. But there were other reasons why Menzies was particularly interested in the Suez crisis and why he got so heavily involved, not least that he happened to be in London at the time it, it erupted, but that... But of course, Menzies a um, a strong Anglophile and and strongly having a strong sense of loyalty to the the British Empire and and the Commonwealth, he would have had a a sense that it was his his duty as as Prime Minister of Australia. Do you think to 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 support the British position? But but he really got involved in in the nitty gritty, as you explained, of the of the negotiations, even going so far as to to make approaches directly to to. President Nasser in Cairo. Yes, it was quite extraordinary uh, that Menzies took it upon himself to be in that position. At the popular level, you could understand the strength of the uh, loyalty that was felt to the British at that time. I mean, you just had the royal visit in '54. You uh, there are anxieties as well about the situation with the Cold War and. Uh, suggestions that NASA was, was way too close uh, to the Soviet Union. Uh, and, of course, we just had Petrov affair in, in 54 as well. There was a certain level of racial antagonism uh, towards Egypt or Egyptians resulting from two world wars. I mean, you could explain that sort of popular sentiment of why people would be rallying to the, the flag, as it were. But that doesn't... <laughs> That's not good enough uh, when you're talking about cabinet-level discussions uh, and ministerial policy-making. And what is really striking about those cabinet discussions, and I was privileged to have access to those records for the first time, was that there was absolutely minimal consideration of strategic issues and, and regional realities among officials, briefing ministers, and among the ministers themselves, there was absolutely none of that strategic analysis or discussion that you would have expected to be part of a policy-making process. It, it was very clearly a, a series of political decisions, not strategic-based, a lot of gut instinct and precious little understanding of the broader issues that were involved uh, between the United States and the UK, and indeed whether the approach that British were aiming to pursue had even the remotest chance of succeeding uh, in the absence of clear, forthright American support, which we were told was not going to be forthcoming. Quite extraordinary. And uh, and something that 
is also extraordinary is that at that time, the External Affairs Department, which was the precursor to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which you and I both work for, uh, the External Affairs Department didn't actually have any coverage of Australia-Britain relations. That all fell under um, the Prime Minister's Department department. and of course, under yes. the auspices of uh, of the Prime Minister himself, Robert Menzies. So um, Richard Casey, the External Affairs Minister, and his um, and his bureaucrats were were quite marginalised in this whole process, weren't they? Um, but but needless to say, they their their advice anyway, and the and the work they were doing internally really lacked, um, as you said, this this forward looking and objective policy analysis that one would expect of of uh, of our policy makers and cabinet processes these days. That's absolutely right. The in fact, if one looks for lessons from sewers, it's a fertile field to plough in terms of the, the the perennial question of how do you manage that grey space between policy advice on the one hand and political decision making. And it was extraordinarily difficult for officials to work in that space. Uh, Menzies was not disposed to listen to the advice of people like Arthur Tang, who was then the Secretary of the Department, on the grounds that in Menzies' view, uh, Tang was one of uh, one of Evett's men. Uh, he was seen as being way too close to the Labor heritage, uh, if you like, in, in uh, from the late 1940s and his support for the United Nations and so on. And then you had Casey, who, quite frankly, made a far better analysis of what was actually at stake in regard to sewers than any of his colleagues. But Casey never had the capacity to deliver persuasive arguments to his colleagues. He was a totally nice guy, a gentleman, uh, but he wasn't cunning enough. Uh, he wasn't enough of a politician to secure that level of respect that he needed to make his voice heard. And Menzies, if there's one thing you could say about Menzies on sewers, it was that he did not welcome unsolicited advice. And uh, (laughs) uh, the harder Casey tried, I think the more Menzies turned him off. Unfortunately, (laughs) Casey was too much of a gentleman. Unfortunately, as a historian, uh, unfortunately, Casey was too much of a gentleman to keep notes of his discussions with Menzies, so we don't know exactly what Menzies said in response to Casey's oral advice to Menzies. Oh, that's uh, that's disappointing. There wasn't uh, wasn't more diligent diary taking during that period by Casey. <laughs> but uh, no, do you do you um do you think Menzies listened to to any of the advice coming from external affairs, or he was too tainted by his distrust of? Of Arthur Tang and uh, and and evident disregard for for Casey's <laughs> Casey's advice it, it as was, well. It, it was a mixed picture. Uh, external affairs uh, had its own differing currents of opinion, and uh, there were elements within it. I can name some names. Probably shouldn't. Uh, who were very conservative, very anglophile in their own thinking. Uh, one of them by the name of Charles Kevin actually modelled himself on Anthony Eden. And 
from that part of the department means he's occasionally grabbed hold of briefing and used it uh, almost verbatim in some of his in some of his statements and disregarded uh, material that was coming to him from Tang through uh, McBride as acting foreign minister or from Casey. So occasionally Menzies would cherry pick stuff that he liked. But when it came to the actual performance, for example, in Cairo, Menzies wouldn't even let Tang in the room when he was negotiating or when he was meeting with NASA. It was that level of... of, uh, insularity, if you like. Uh, and in the cabinet, uh, Menzies was basically working within an echo chamber. The, the quality of the discussion in cabinet on regard to sewers uh, was simply abysmal. By any uh, reading of, of the cabinet documents, uh, Menzies simply dominated the discussion and his colleagues sat back in awestruck admiration as he proceeded to give his own interpretation of, of what had happened and why. There's a lot to be said for the way in which the department tried to provide support to the government's declared position. Uh, in New York, in Washington, in London, I think the, the performance of our representatives on the ground was absolutely exemplary uh, so far as uh, delivering what the government wanted. But in Canberra, the department's policy process uh, was frankly all over the place. The multilateral side of the department and people like Alan Renouf were inclined to see the British approach as deeply destructive of the United Nations and the values that it represented. On the political side of, of the department, however, there was a sense that uh, NASA was outplaying them in the multilateral context and far too much attention was, was being given to that rather than the, uh, the risks that were possibly involved in, in NASA's uh, seizure of the canal. Nobody seemed to want to talk about the fact that the British uh, were in decline and that the, the outlook for the British approach uh, was decidedly poor, shall we say. Yeah, indeed. Um I mean, we, we have the benefit of hindsight now and we and we can understand the British Empire was, was very much in decline and we can understand that by this stage Menzies had signed some years before in 1951 a security pact with the United States, um, the ANZUS Alliance, as well as with New Zealand. So there was a recognition, at least in Australia, that, that Britain was no longer the global power that it once was, that Australia... Uh, needed to have that that security arrangement with the the preeminent power, uh, the preeminent global power, the United States. Now, so there was at least sort of in a in a, um, a strategic sense, Menzies has was acknowledging through his actions that there was a shift in global power dynamics, but but there was obviously still that sense of of nostalgia to the British Empire, to the to the preeminence of, of Britain, at least in that sphere of influence around the Middle East. Um, do you do you think do you think Menzies was with his decision making around Suez completely blinded by his admiration for for Britain and the British Empire? Obviously, his relationship with the um, British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, um, which had been forged in the Second World War as well. Were, 
was was that it or or do you think his analysis of the situation at the time not with the benefit of hindsight obviously given given his the information he would have been receiving at the time that that there would have been a, a strong case to be made or was it just nostalgia that was blinding him from common sense I think the British played upon uh, Menzies' idealistic interpretation of the uh, the British role in the world and Menzies' frustration with what he had observed in terms of the decline in British capacity to exert its will. Going back to the, uh, from 1950 in, uh, and the loss of or the uh, Iranian nationalization of the petroleum facilities in Iran and proceeding from there, Menzies had this sense that the British were not prepared to use their their power with the with the authority and the determination that the situation required. Menzies was decidedly on the front foot when it came to preparedness to use force if all other options uh, were proved to be ineffective uh, as a result of Soviet vetoes in the Security Council and, and, and or any other device that prevented the British having their way. He really did overstate, I think, oversimplify uh, the op- options that were available uh, to the British at any one stage. And Eden, for his part, and uh, the others around Eden, quite deliberately misled Menzies about their actual intentions in regard to Suez. There's no doubt that Eden and Menzies had had a general discussion about the desirability of NASA being put in his place, cut back, and so on. But there is no evidence to confirm suggestions that Eden gave Menzies prior warning that he was uh, going to launch this attack or at least be party to this tripartite attack on Egypt. Menzies in cabinet found himself having to interpret what had happened and accepting uh, and using almost verbatim the advice that he was getting from Eden that what was happening was no more than a so-called police action to separate uh, the Israelis and the Egyptians and for the British and the French to reoccupy the canal zone in order to prevent this fighting. Now, it wouldn't pass the pub test now and it didn't pass the pub test then, but Menzies actually wanted to believe it and he stuck with that uh, defence of the British despite all the evidence that this had been something which had been cooked up uh, and and not disclosed by the British and French from the beginning of the crisis. In fact, the French Prime Minister even uh, gave a press conference uh, which outlined how the uh, how the the scheme had been concocted, uh, and Menzies still didn't even want to acknowledge that that was the case. It's a, a fascinating story, and uh, it, it's interesting. Even in later life, Menzies didn't bear the French and the British any animosity about this 
about, about not being informed about this uh, the sort of gunboat diplomacy event um, with Israel launching the invasion into the Sinai Peninsula. He he was uh, he was accepting of of it and that he didn't get the forewarning despite all his own efforts to uh, to support them. That's right. Uh, he actually, I think, was quite bruised by the encounter, but life rolls on. And the what happened was that uh, Eden was forced to resign, of course. But relations between the the Americans and uh, the British were restored in 1957 with Macmillan uh, and Eisenhower re-establishing a rapport. But very much with uh, the British now becoming the junior partner or recognising that they were the junior partner in that relationship with the United States uh, and resenting it, of course. But it became much easier uh, for Menzies uh, to reconcile uh, the outcome, which was a complete full-scale no-holds-barred victory for NASA. Menzies could reconcile himself to that to some extent because at least he had felt he had done the right thing by the British throughout this this whole miserable affair. It wasn't all that easy, of course. Um, uh, It could have been made much worse if uh, some of the things that Menzies got up to uh, in the course of supporting the British had actually come to fruition. He had, for example, told the... According to the British records, not the Australian ones, uh, Menzies had actually offered support and uh, probably naval support uh, to the British, uh, in the event of conflict breaking out. He hadn't told his, his colleagues about that. Uh, and when Ian followed up with a request for assistance, Menzies decided he wouldn't reply uh, to that request. Uh, on another matter, Menzies was in, was in possession of cables giving details of the exchanges between Eden and Eisenhower, uh, which made it very clear that the Americans would not be supporting uh, Eden uh, in this uh, in his efforts to bring the matter to a military uh, head. Menzies played a, a very singular role throughout all of this, which could have brought him uh, into some hot water, I think, uh, with a more robust cabinet. But he managed to uh, slide through all of that. Uh, the thing which could have uh, caused most problems was actually saved by uh, by Dick Casey. Menzies took it upon himself uh, 11 days after the ceasefire had been imposed and uh, Eden's political career had been destroyed and so on. Uh, Menzies took it upon himself to write to Eisenhower, uh, telling Eisenhower uh, uh, in very uh, very forthright language, that the United States uh, had never understood what the British were up to. The, the British action had been proper and correct. NASA was the uh, was going to be the person who was going to carry away the spoils of all of this, and that if the UN force that was being assembled wasn't sufficiently empowered to address the basically uh, to impose a constraint upon uh, NASA's uh, victory, uh, then consideration might have to be given to resuming the conflict. Goodness. <laughs> it fell it, it, it to poor old Casey, who was in, in Washington, to deliver this message to Eisenhower. Uh, fortunately, I guess, uh, Eisenhower didn't want to talk to, to Casey. Uh, 
And uh, that gave Casey a little breathing space, uh, despite Menzies and his people uh, wanting this letter to be delivered urgently. And Casey, who was with Jim Plimsoll, senior diplomat, uh, looked at this message, which was clearly going to be unhelpful to everybody, and wondered what on earth to do with it. Uh, he eventually made a summary of the note, of the letter, uh, and carefully left out of the summary all the nasty bits, uh, including the suggestion of resuming the military conflict, and added a few gracious words about American power and so on, uh, and used that as the basis for discussion uh, with the American uh, Acting Secretary of State, while handing over, of course, the letter itself. And I think that helped to diffuse the situation somewhat, together with the fact that uh, the Americans were well aware that there were differences between Casey and Menzies over the whole attitude to be taken to the British in regard to Suez. But it was, I think it's fair to say that the the finest Australian diplomacy during Suez uh, was not on the Security Council or in Cairo, but it was Casey's intervention between Eisenhower and Menzies. Yeah, that saved us from uh, a potentially uh, ongoing difficult diplomatic incident. Um, it was already difficult because Washington and Eisenhower's reaction to the to the British and, of course, the Australian response to Suez was utter ca- condemnation. And I, I, th- I think Britain's punishment for its actions over Suez was um, Washington was able to deny Britain a much-needed major loan from the International Monetary Fund, which, of course, put Britain in a very difficult position, as you can imagine, in that sort of post-World War II era when it was uh, in major need of um, economic stimulus. So there were serious consequences from the fallout of the, the... relationship between the US and Britain but of course it did as you said with the changing of the leadership in Britain from Eden to Macmillan it did improve. I wondered if we could now Bob talk about what lessons we can learn from from Suez. Um, Does it we are obviously these days um, experiencing another seismic shift in global power from a from a US hegemony to a, to one where China as a as a significant economic power in the next 10 years will overtake the United States as the world's largest economy as a country that is investing heavily in its in its military and conducting itself in incredibly assertive ways throughout the the Asia-Pacific region, we are experiencing a point in Australia's strategic planning where we are under pressure from from China for uh, various decisions we've made um, around um, calling for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19 and supporting um, US troops in Australia, changing our laws in relation to foreign interference in Australia. Um, we So we are experiencing significant economic pressure from uh, China that's been banning various imports of Australian goods from, from barley to coal to, to timber, lobsters and the like. But we, we have an alliance with the United States. We 
are a liberal democracy. The United States also a liberal democracy. Uh, there are calls in Australia to, from some, to make a choice. Don't don't necessarily side with the United States to to be a bit more open to China's rise. There are also calls that. Australia should stick with its with its friends and allies like the United States and the UK. And, of course, the government has recently made a significant announcement with the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal, which would um, indicate that the decision has been made, that, that we, we are making a choice in Australia to, to side, continue to side with the United States and the UK. Uh, but but Suez, Suez um, gives us a good example of, of how... Countries need to be alive to the shifts in uh, geopolitics, in global power balances. Um, And it's also a salutary tale about not being too nostalgic when it comes to strategic choices as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I think, let me make sure I... I, uh, <laughs> I make my own position on these is quite clear. Uh, I actually think that by the standards and the expectations of the time that he served, Menzies uh, was a fine prime minister. And I certainly wouldn't judge him uh, by his Anglophile pretensions and and the what I think was a lamentable performance over Suez. He was an exceptionally gifted politician. And he he, uh, he was a contributor uh, to uh, Australia in ways that I think deserved to be uh, recognised. But the role that he played in regard to sewers uh, does resonate uh, in contemporary Australian policy uh, to the extent that it reminds us of the perils uh, of political leadership that that functions or that seeks to function in an echo chamber of assumptions and perceptions about national interest. And it's uh, a very clear warning, as you said, against setting uh, notions of identity ahead of uh, an inclusive, constructive debate about uh, what sort of perils and possibilities might arise uh, from any strategic decision. And that's my first, I think, first lesson from all of this, that if you uh, going to make policy in a in a prime ministerial office, and then expect uh, the public service to deliver it, then you are running very significant risks of uh, having gut instinct and uh, other calculations override the advice of professionals who are tasked with understanding the, the, a larger picture within which any particular policy might have to evolve. Secondly, I think another lesson from Sewers uh, was that we really lacked that stage, uh, a forward-looking objective policy analysis mechanism uh, that, that in the case of Sewers, could and should have connected the dots about what the British motivation and what its intentions would actually comprise and face ministers with serious questions about what the decline of, of in those days of Britain in the post-war era actually might mean for Australia. That's not to say that one should be taking a, a a, uh, an entirely pessimistic view of the circumstances we, we faced then or we face now. 
circumstances can change. Um, officials can come forward with ideas and advice about how to correct a, a slide, if you like, in uh, in those uh, relativities of power. But the important thing is to have a means of uh, achieving clarity of thinking from ministers about policy objectives and the means of achieving them and not to be swept up in loose talk about identity uh, and emotional recollections of, of shared history and so on. Those are important. Uh, they're necessary in many ways in selling a policy, but they shouldn't be the basis on which a policy is, is devised. Um, and I think we're now, more, as you said, more than six decades uh, since sewers. Uh, we're dealing with a, uh, a very different Australia now to the Australia we had then. Um, but it's just as important now as it was then to understand that if you start mixing up questions of identity with shifts in the relativities of power and you don't invite or listen to balanced advice or if indeed uh, that advice is not offered uh, when it matters most, uh, then there's very cautionary tales to be told uh, uh, in regard to sewers that we should still be bearing in mind. Indeed. I mean, many parallels with today's set of circumstances, but also many significant differences. Um, I mean, some will, the, the US decline, I think, has been talked about um, for, for three or four decades and is still yet to... Uh, to to, uh, to take effect. So uh, I I think in terms of um, uh, a British Empire in decline or a US a US Empire for for want of a better word in decline, we still I think the US as a global power still has uh, um, a very significant future ahead of it as a significant economy, a significant military, and of course incredible soft power. Um, but its domestic politics are, are challenging um, and the support that the US people have for continued US activism in the global yep. stage is, is always a, um, a break on, on what the US is prepared to do. Um, and that said, when you raise um, the issue of, of not, not focusing too heavily on identity when it comes to making these strategic decisions... Um, we also need to think, I think, very carefully about the type of world we want and is it a, a world that is um, left to the law of the jungle and, and you know, a, a real politic analysis would say, well, that just is the world as it is. Um, but uh, Australia has always taken the view that a, that a, that a world that is um, based on a rules-based order um, that is a, is a world that Australia can happily um, function in in a in a prosperous and peaceful way because we are a middle power. We aren't. We uh, we certainly are not in a position to um, to to defend our territory as effectively as it as it might need to be. Um, and uh, we rely on uh, a peaceful, prosperous world that is based on um, recognisable rules that were set out in the in the ashes of World War Two. Absolutely, and uh, I think it's important to recognise that uh, the, I think it was Woody Allen who once said that uh, if we're talking about matters in the long term, 
Well, the long term can be a very long time, especially towards the end. We're, we're not talking about sudden shifts in global power relativity. So we're talking about trends that that are a strategist nightmare, but uh, they need to be examined in terms of what is deliverable uh, at any given you know, at any given time. And that brings me back to this this whole question about how do you manage that uh, advice to governments, which doesn't gel with notions of imagined history or identity and so on. It's a very emotionally charged uh, political environment interacting with a a cold strategic analysis. uh, uh, And it requires extraordinary skills on the part of a foreign minister and his officials or her officials to get that uh, that analysis to have impact at the decision-making level. It really sets an absolute premium on who you have uh, uh, charged with advising the government uh, on these issues and to not only advising but persuading the government uh, to go forward. And Casey didn't, did not succeed on that score. Hopefully, going forward uh, in Australia, we will have more success as we uh, steer our way through this emerging situation over the next couple of decades. Indeed, and I guess it's a, a lesson too that the identities of the ministers and advisors and, and bureaucrats involved really, really matter here. That art of, you, you need the right analysis, but you need that art of persuasion and to be that persuasive voice in the room and uh, obviously... Um, Casey, Casey didn't quite have that when it came to Menzies. Menzies had a certain view of things, and and that and that prevailed. Um, but uh, uh, a fascinating period in our history, Bob, um, the Suez Crisis. So thank you very much, Bob Bowker, for joining us today on Afternoon Light. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast and uh, understand a lot more about the Suez crisis from 1950 to 57, an incredibly important period in geopolitics. Thank you, Georgina. I really enjoyed talking with you. Cheers. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.